Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Alpine Church. If we've never met, my name is John Bellis. I'm the campus pastor up at the Alpine Logan campus, and I also have the opportunity to serve on the executive team here at Alpine. Uh, Last week, we jumped back into the Gospel of Mark. As most of you know, we spent almost all of 2023 exploring Mark, which is the the fastest, kind of quickest-paced gospel of all the gospels. And then we took a little bit of a break from it for the Advent season. And then the first five weeks of this year, we went through a sermon series called Resilient, where we looked at emotions that typically tend to pull us away from God, but we explored how if we harness those emotions, they can actually strengthen our faith and draw us closer to Him. And I've had quite a few conversations with individuals over the last several weeks who have told me I've been battling those exact emotions you guys taught on. In fact, I had several people who said, I really feel like this sermon series was written specifically for me. So I know God used that. I'm glad that we were sensitive to the Spirit's leading and we taught through that. And I really believe he's going to do the same thing as we get back into the Gospel of Mark. I really believe that some of you will say today, I feel like this sermon was written just for me. Now we're going to start off with a question. It's a question that may generate some of those same emotions that we talked about during the Resilient series. That question is, how do you know if your faith is authentic? How do you know if your faith is authentic? Now that question may cause anger to rise up. You might say, John, who are you to ask if my faith is authentic? Well, if that's your response, let me clarify. I'm not asking how do I know if your faith is authentic. I'm asking how do you know if your faith is authentic. Maybe it's not anger. Maybe it generated fear because you've already been asking yourself, is my faith authentic? And you're not sure. Or maybe it generated shame because you know you're not owning your faith, but you just put on a front because everyone around you expects that. You know, whatever that emotion is, I think this is a a healthy question to ask. I've asked this same question of myself many times over the years, even after I became a pastor, is my faith authentic? I think it's a question we should ask. Paul tells the Christians in Corinth to examine themselves and see if they're in the faith in 2 Corinthians 13.5. I want to frame the importance of this question with one of the most terrifying verses in the Bible to me and one of the most comforting verses in the Bible to me. And the first one is the terrifying one, Matthew 7, 21. Jesus says, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. So this verse speaks to people who have the right information about Jesus They call him Lord, but they don't have the right attitude. They call him Lord, but they don't really submit to him as Lord. They call him Lord, but they don't really trust that Jesus is who he says he is and that he's the one who purchased our salvation. Instead, they're relying on their own works. They know the right words, but their hearts are far from him. That can be a very terrifying verse. So I want to frame it on the other end with one of the most 
comforting verses in the Bible to me. This is 1 John chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. John says, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I have written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. John says simply, if you have the Son, you have life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have life. And he wants you to know, he wants you to have assurance that you have eternal life if you believe in the name of the Son of God. Now, believe here isn't just an intellectual belief. It means more than that. It's a trust. It means that I trust Jesus is who he says he is, and I trust in what he did for me. We're going to observe two spiritual seekers in our text today. We're going to see Peter, and we're going to see Judas. Both were men who followed Jesus for three years, Both professed to have a faith in him. Both saw him do amazing miracles and both made terrible mistakes. But one had authentic faith and one was a fraud. So let's jump into the text. We're going to be again in Mark chapter 14 if you want to follow along starting at verse 12. It says, On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go to prepare the Passover meal for you? We talked about Passover a little bit in last week's sermon. This meal that commemorates the Israelites coming out of Egypt. This meal that is loaded with so much symbolism. And we're going to see during this Passover that Jesus is going to redefine history. He's going to redefine all the symbolism. We're going to see that all the symbolism of Passover actually points to Jesus. And then just shortly after that, he's going to give ultimate freedom over sin and over death. It's not just a freedom out of Egypt. It's freedom over sin and freedom over death because he is the ultimate Passover lamb. So here it's the first day of the festival, and he hasn't talked to the disciples about where they're going to celebrate. And for good reason, he's keeping it a secret. So they ask him, Jesus, where do you want us to go to make preparations for the Passover? And then Jesus responds, beginning in verse 13. It says, so Jesus sent two of them into Jerusalem with these instructions. As you go into the city, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him. At the house he enters, say to the owner, the teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? He will take you upstairs to a large room that is already set up. That is where you should prepare the meal. So the disciples went into the city and found everything just as Jesus had said, and they prepared the Passover meal there. Now, we know from last week's message that Judas has already decided that he's going to betray Jesus. And he's looking for an opportune time and place to do that. He needs to do it kind of outside the public eye. So what better place to do that than when Jesus is alone with his followers celebrating the Passover? In fact, maybe Judas is one of the disciples in verse 12 who said, Teacher, where do you want us to make preparations? Because he wanted to use that as a chance to lay a trap for Jesus. We don't know for sure who asked Jesus. It just said his disciples asked in verse 12. 
But we do know this, that in verse 13, Jesus only entrusts two of his disciples with the instructions on where to find the location where they're going to celebrate the Passover. And it doesn't even tell us that these two disciples are part of the 12. It could have been part of a larger group of people who follow Jesus. But you can bet for sure Judas wasn't one of the two that had the instructions on where to find the Passover meal. Jesus is speaking this in Bethany. So the first thing that he tells them to do is go into Jerusalem. And he says, as you go into Jerusalem, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Now we read that and that probably doesn't mean much to us, but in that culture, it was very rare for a man to carry a jar of water. It was the women's role to carry the jars of water. Now you can insert your best, those are the good old days joke here at your own peril if you want to. If you really spoiled her on Valentine's Day, you might get away with it. Otherwise, I'd just keep that to yourself. I'm going to ask Casey to delete this because my wife's watching online so that she won't see that. <laughs> then they follow the man with the jar of water. When they get to the house where he lives, they're supposed to ask the owner of the house. The teacher asks, where is the room where I can celebrate the Passover? Notice they don't mention Jesus by name. They just simply say the teacher asks. It's like a password See, there is a tension in the city right now that you can almost feel because the religious leaders are actively looking for a way to kill Jesus. One of his own disciples has agreed to betray them. Jesus knows where this is leading. Jesus knows this very night when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's going to be betrayed, but it can't happen before he has a chance to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. Does this remind you a little bit of the mission when he sent the two disciples in to get the donkey colt that he used to ride in to Jerusalem for his triumphal entry? There's a lot of similarities here. And just like in that story, notice the simple obedience of the disciples. They could have asked dozens of questions. They could have come up with all kinds of excuses on why this might not work. But they just simply stepped out in obedience. How about you? Is Jesus asking you to do something today that doesn't make a lot of sense or maybe carries a risk? Are you going to come up with all kinds of excuses? Or are you just going to simply step out in obedience? It's my opinion that this man carrying the water was something Jesus arranged ahead of time with the owner of the house. See, Jesus had been to Jerusalem many times on previous trips. Mark doesn't talk a lot about those in his gospel, but from the gospel of John, we know that Jesus had been to Jerusalem many times. And I think that he had arranged this ahead of time with the owner of the house. There's a couple of reasons I believe that. I mean, he certainly could have done it supernaturally, but when you see that the room is already set up and ready, and when they use this password of the teacher instead of Jesus, I think this is something Jesus prearranged. Either way, when the disciples get into the city, they find everything just as Jesus had explained it. Now, if you're following along your Bible, we're going to jump down a few verses to verse 22. We'll come back to 17 through 21 at the end. But I want to talk more about the Passover meal and some of the symbolism itself. So at the Passover meal, there were traditionally four different cups of wine. The first cup of wine was called the cup of sanctification. And typically before that cup was drank, whoever was leading the Passover, which was typically the head of the household, would recite a blessing over that. 
And this marked the official beginning of the Passover meal. It sort of set it apart as a special occasion. Then the second cup was called the cup of plagues. Before they drank this cup, they would recite each of the ten plagues that had happened to the Egyptians. And in some traditions, they would actually take and stick their finger in the cup and then let a drop drip for each of the ten plagues. Now, in Mark's typical fast-paced fashion, he doesn't even mention the first two cups. He just goes right by those. But you can be sure that Jesus and his disciples would have drank the first two cups of Passover. We're also told in Mark chapter 15 that many women followed Jesus from Galilee into Jerusalem. See, Passover was a family celebration. Women and children were involved. When we picture the Last Supper, we always picture just Jesus in the room with the 12 disciples, but it's likely there were many more people in this large room celebrating and that the 12 disciples were just simply the ones who sat closest to Jesus. We continue on in the story. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, take it for this is my body. Now, there were two types of ceremonial bread for the Jewish people. There was the matzah bread, which is what they would eat during the Passover meal. This was unleavened bread. This was a bread that symbolized leaving in haste. It symbolized leaving in humility. But it also symbolized redemption and freedom. And during Passover, matzah is often called the bread of affliction. And as Traditional Jews would eat this, pious Jews would eat it. It would remind them of the hardships that the nation of Israel suffered while they were in, uh, in Egypt. And it would also remind them of how hastily they had to leave Egypt, that they didn't have time to let the bread rise. That's why they used unleavened bread. And the second type of ceremonial bread for the Jewish nation was the show bread or the bread of the presence. This was bread that was dedicated to God every Sabbath so the priest would bring in 12 new loaves, 12 fresh loaves, and they would take the old loaves and then the priest would eat those old loaves as they removed them from the Lord's presence. And in the instructions on presenting those in Leviticus 24, God says that offering this bread is an ongoing expression of the eternal covenant. Jesus is called the bread of life. And as such, he fulfills both of these symbolisms. He came in humility, but his death and resurrection bring redemption and bring freedom. And it's through Jesus that we now can be part of the eternal covenant with God and have relationship with him. And after Jesus blesses the bread, he breaks it into pieces and he now gives it new symbolism. From this point forward, the bread's not gonna have the same meaning that it used to have. He says, take it for this is my body. Now, your translation may say, take and eat, for this is my body. Some of the earliest manuscripts that we have just say, take it. Others say, take and eat. And whether it's written out as take and eat, the eating is certainly assumed. Nobody just takes food to hold it, right? So it's assumed that they would eat it. So he says, take and eat, for this is my body. Now notice, Jesus tells them to take it. He doesn't force it on them. They have to take it. They have to receive it. 
It's the same for us today. Jesus won't force a relationship with him on you. You have to receive it for the gift that it is. And then just as food is vital to our survival, without Jesus, we would perish. They continue on with the meal and they get to the third and the fourth cups of wine in verses 23 through 25. It says, and he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice for many. I tell you the truth. I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Now in the Passover meal, the third cup of wine was called the cup of redemption. Before drinking this cup, a special blessing was said over the wine and they would thank God for redeeming the Israelite people. Often the the story of the exodus out of Egypt would be told during the drinking of this third cup of wine. And then in verse 25, somewhere between 23 and 25, they've now transitioned to the fourth cup of wine, which is the cup of acceptance or the cup of restoration. And we know that somewhere along verse 25, they're in the fourth cup because Jesus says, I tell you the truth, I won't drink again from the cup until I drink it anew with my Father in heaven. So there there can't be another cup still to drink because he says, I won't drink from the vine again until I drink it anew with the Father. And Jesus gives this cup new symbolism. He says, this cup represents my blood, which is shed for you. The last supper is now complete. The final Passover has been shared between Jesus and his disciples, and he has redefined the most important story in Israel's history. He is the ultimate fulfillment. He is the ultimate Passover lamb. See, it's not just about freedom from slavery in Egypt. It's about freedom from sin and death. And it's not just about some ceremonial bread. It's about his body which was broken for us. And it's not about a cup of wine. It's about his blood that was shed for us. And all of that would play out the very next day. And notice when he gave them the cup, they all drank from it. They all drank from it, including Judas, including Peter, these two seekers we talked about at the very beginning. Now, Mark does something interesting here in his gospel, and he's the only gospel writer that does it, where he specifically says they all drank from it. And what Mark is doing is this is a precursor to him using the phrase all of them multiple times in Mark chapter 14. And when Mark uses this phrase, he uses it to the shame of his disciples. So in verse 23, it says they all drank. In verse 27, Jesus tells them they all will fall away. In verse 31, they all pledge their loyalty to him. And in verse 50, they all fled. They all abandoned him. And Jesus knew all of that would happen. Jesus told them all of that would happen. And these are the guys he wanted to spend his last supper with a traitor and cowards. And I'm so glad that he did. See, not only would he eat with these guys, he would wash their feet. And the very next day, he would die for them. 
And I'm so grateful that he did that. I'm so grateful that it's his grace and mercy that invite us to the table to take and eat, and it's not our merits. Because I've been a coward at times. I've been a traitor. I've abandoned Jesus to follow my own desires and my own goals and my own ambitions. So does that mean my faith isn't authentic? Back to the question we started this whole sermon with, if I've been a coward at times, if I've been a traitor at times, how do I know if my faith is authentic? I want to go back to the passage we skipped over earlier. So we're going to do verses 17 through 21 as we seek to answer this question. In the evening, Jesus arrived with the 12. As they were at the table eating, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, one of you eating with me here will betray me. Greatly distressed, each one asked in turn, am I the one? He replied, it is one of you 12 who is eating from this bowl with me. For the Son of Man must die, as the Scriptures declared long ago. But how terrible it would be for the one who betrays him. It would be far better for that man if he had never been born. So Jesus is at the table eating with his disciples. And he starts out with this phrase by saying, I tell you the truth. Now, if you're reading the Gospels, you actually see that phrase attributed to Jesus quite often. I tell you the truth, or in some translations, it'll say, truly, I say unto you. And so you might think that was kind of a common phrase in Jesus's time, but it wasn't. It was rare. You know, people didn't walk around and go, I tell you the truth. It's awfully hot out here today. That's, that's not how they spoke. This is a rare thing. And the closest parallel to this type of language that Jesus uses is from the Old Testament. And what it really means is, God speaks truly, or God speaks truth. And when Jesus uses this phrase, it's like he's saying, hey guys, listen up, because I'm getting ready to speak the very word of God. I'm getting ready to speak God's truth. That's why sometimes in the Bible, people say, where does this man get such authority that's what they mean when they say Jesus taught with authority because Jesus elevated his own teachings to the very level of the word of God because he is God. So when Jesus begins this with, truly I say unto you, man, I bet they wondered, what's he gonna say next? What amazing truth is Jesus gonna lay on us? And then he says, one of you here is gonna betray me. I bet when he first said that, you could have heard a pin drop. But then the reality starts to sink in. See, the disciples had been around long enough that they knew if Jesus said something was going to happen, it was going to happen. So the reality starts to sink in, and they begin to ask one by one, am I the one, Jesus? Is it me? So they agonizingly recognize their weakness. They recognize how shallow their faith is at times. In humility, they recognize just how sinful they really are. And so one by one, they come to grips and they say, is it me? This is a healthy thing for us to do. This is a healthy thing for us to recognize that in our own strength and in our own power, we are so likely to fail. You know, the Bible says that pride comes before a fall. 
One of the worst positions you can be at in your faith is to become prideful in your own strength and your own power and think that you can do anything without sinning because then you start putting yourselves in difficult situations and more likely than not, you're going to fall. It's going to be disastrous. In a meal that is filled with so much symbolism, Jesus is going to bring out even more symbolism now. I also believe that one of the reasons Jesus started out with, truly I say unto you, is because he wanted them to know that he is speaking the word of God. He wanted them to know that this is going to happen. This has to happen. And he wanted them to know that this does not catch God off guard. See, their whole world is about to get turned upside down when he goes to the cross. He wants them to know that nothing is happening that isn't part of the will and sovereignty of God. He wants his disciples to know that he has to be betrayed. He has to go to the cross. And he has to die so that he can rise again and bring them freedom and bring redemption. And he doesn't want them to be caught off guard when it happens. He then gives this other really cool connection to the Old Testament. He says, it is one of you who is eating from this bowl with me. Now, most scholars believe this is a, a, um, what's the word I'm thinking of? (laughs) This is an allusion back to, to Psalm 41, verse 9, where David says, even my best friend, the one I trusted completely, the one who shared my food has turned against me. So we see the Psalm 41 is this really cool type of foreshadowing that points to Jesus. Now it's interesting that Jesus never publicly answers their question. Jesus never says to the whole group, who's going to betray him? Now in John's gospel, we see that he confides in John. John is sitting next to him. And John asks him, who is it? And he says, it's the disciple to whom I'm going to give this piece of bread after I dip it in the bowl. And he dips it in the bowl and he gives it to Judas. But as soon as he does that, he says, Judas, what you need to do, go and do quickly. And John lets us know that the the other disciples have no idea what he's talking about. They think he's sending Judas to go get uh, food for the poor or to go buy food for the rest of their journey. They don't know what's going on. And I think one of the reasons he didn't tell the whole crowd is knowing the temper of Peter (laughs) and knowing that Simon was a zealot. I don't think Judas gets out the door if everybody knew that it was Judas. But again, it had to happen. So let's go back to our initial question. How do you know if your faith is authentic? See, Peter and Judas are both going to make huge mistakes tonight. Peter is going to deny that he even knows Jesus three times. But yet Peter's going to end up being martyred for his faith. Judas is going to end up killing himself over remorse for betraying Jesus. So what's the difference? How do we properly evaluate our faith? Well, the first question we need to ask is, have you trusted Jesus for salvation? See, it's not about what you've done. I can assure you when I stand before a holy and righteous God, I'm not going to mention a single word about anything I've done. I'm not going to say, God, I've read in my Bible thousands of times. God, I've given you more than 10% of my income. God, I've led congregations. God, I I tried to be a good father and a good husband. I'm not going to say any of that. I'm going to say, God, I'm throwing myself at the mercy of the cross. 
that it's all about what Jesus did for me and it's nothing about what I did. The only thing I did was accept his free gift and I couldn't even do that if God didn't pursue me first and soften my heart. So are you trusting Jesus for salvation? See, this whole supper is about his body. It's about his blood. It's about his redemptive work. And the trusting Jesus is trusting both who he is and what he did. And we get a glimpse that Judas never trusted that Jesus was who he says he was. And we get this little glimpse in Matthew 27. In Matthew 27, Judas is filled with grief for betraying Jesus. So he takes the money back to the high priest. And he says, take this money back for I've betrayed an innocent man. He doesn't say I've betrayed the son of God. He doesn't say I've betrayed the Messiah. He doesn't say I've betrayed the son of man. He simply says an innocent man. Judas couldn't deny Jesus's innocence, but he never recognized Jesus's divinity. He never fully trusted that Jesus was who he says he was. So that's the question. Have you trusted Jesus for salvation? Do you believe he is who he says he is and that his work on the cross was sufficient? And if the answer to that is no, I don't mean to call you out, but I would just let you know honestly, then your faith is not authentic. You might call yourself a Christian. You might go to church. You might do good things, but if you're not trusting in Jesus, when you stand before God, if you try to tell him about all the things you've done, he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. If the answer to that first question is yes, then there's a second question we should ask. Are you honoring God with your life? Now notice the question isn't, are you perfect? The question isn't, are you sinless? Because you're never going to be. Even once we've put our faith in Jesus, there's still going to be sin. But I would submit that genuine trust leads to obedience. When I genuinely trust Jesus, not only for salvation, but when I trust in his character and in his goodness, when I trust in God and who he is, it's going to lead me to obedience. Because if I trust in God, I'm going to know that he is good. And I'm going to know that he has the best in mind for me. So if that's God, why wouldn't I want to obey him? It's going to lead to obedience. This is how John says it in 1 John 1. And we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. When we know him, we trust him. And when we trust him, we obey him. Now, again, not perfectly. We're still going to wrestle with our sin nature. But there should be a trajectory in our life where we come to trust him more and more and obey him more and more. So I think this is a good time for us as a congregation to just pause and ask those two questions. So if you're here at our Riverdale campus, I'm going to encourage you, bow your head and close your eyes. For those of you watching online or in Leighton and West Haven, I want to encourage you just... Just bow your head right now and close your eyes and ask that first question. Jesus, am I trusting in you for salvation? If the answer to that is no, I want you to know you can do that right now. You can just come to, to Jesus and say, Jesus, I recognize that I'm broken. I recognize that I'm a sinner. And I need forgiveness. And I trust that what you did on the cross was sufficient for me. I believe that you came and died for my sins. You rose from the grave to conquer sin and death, and I trust that is sufficient. And if you just prayed that prayer with a repentant heart, the Bible says you're a new creation. Then I would ask that second question. 
Am I honoring God with my life? Lord God, I just pray that you would reveal to all of us if there's an area in our life that we haven't turned over to you, if there's an area of unrepentant sin. God, I just pray that you would reveal that to us now. And that we would lay that over to you, that we would want to turn and go your way instead of our way because we were bought at a price. And Lord, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.